Hi everyone, it's Crypto Dentist here. So we've got a new sponsor, and we are really excited about this one. It's Macrodisiac, the man, the myth, the legend himself, David Bell. David has recently launched his weekly Macrodisiac email, which is essentially a trader's guide to macroeconomics for less than half a cup of coffee a day. If you follow him already on Twitter under the at Macrodisiac underscore handle, don't forget the underscore there, so that's at macrodisiac underscore, then you'll know already the kind of critical analysis that he brings to the table from his trading background. You'll get a weekly email covering all kinds of macroeconomic themes and topics from the likely impact and effects of central bank and government policy statements to David's own views on the markets and trade ideas he's looking at. So if you want to sign up to his newsletter, it's $24.99 a month. That's £24, British pounds and pence, $24.99 a month with 30 days free and he'll soon be accepting Bitcoin. So if you're looking for a unique take on the markets, the global economy and how it all hangs together, then sign up now. The link is in the show notes, so head on over there and you can sign up. And don't forget... We still have our other key sponsor, independent author Chris Hannon, who has penned a book that is being compared to The Hunger Games and Maze Runner, and it's called Orca Rising. That's Orca Rising, which has been nominated for the People's Book Prize. Head over to Amazon now and pick up a copy before Hollywood buys the film rights. You can't really consider yourself to be a crypto whale without having a copy of Orca Rising on your desk, can you? Hello, this is Graham and James from ID Theory. And this is Crypto and Grill. Hi everyone, it's Crypto Dantes here with Stig of the Pump. Hi Stig, how are you? I'm good. Back in my mum's basement again. Excellent. Oh, things. I know it's a down. These ups and down trends. You get into the corner office and then you end up back in the basement. It's um, you need a steadier life. Um, but um, it's nice to have you back. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't do this without you. So no, it's been a while, hasn't it? Well, it has. However, if you're listening back to back in the future, it's just the next episode. So let's try and stay um, outside of the realms of time and space conversations. Um, But for our regular listeners, it's been a few weeks since our last session um, with Commissioner Hester Peirce from the SEC. And that is is mainly due to holidays, uh, but we're back now. And aside from a much needed break, we do promise to only bring you interviews that we think will help to unravel the Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency space to your to help you further understand and explore um, all of the concepts at play here in more detail. So with that in mind, um, we've got a couple of fascinating guests today, and uh, it's Graham and James from ID Theory. Say hello, gents. Hi, guys. It's great Thanks to have you. Thanks for having us on. No, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, 
to give the listeners uh, context, they won't know uh, what ID theory is. Um, to set the uh, the rest of the session up, do you want to just give us a, a thirty second background on uh, on what ID theory is, what it stands for, and we will uh, we'll take it from there. Cool. So yeah, I mean, a, a thirty second sort of snapshot. ID theory uh, it stands for incentive design theory. And we are a thematic crypto asset investment firm focusing on decentralized networks. And what that actually means is that uh, we raise external capital to deploy predominantly into liquid uh, publicly traded crypto assets according to a predefined thesis around incentive mechanisms and incentive design. Um, the structure is most akin to a hedge fund, uh, but we would consider ourselves as crypto native um, as there are a, a few different elements to our strategy which we can cover in due course. Okay, and how, how long has it been around? Is, um, is, that, uh, is it a new entity or is it something that's been around for years and, and are you guys, what are your roles within ID Theory? Okay, so we're, we're both founding partners. We actually created the company in May of last year um, and have uh, we, we launched the, the fund that we advise in, in February of this year. Okay, so you're live and operating. You, can I ask you a stupid question? We're up and running. We, we're in the market, yes. There are no right. stupid questions, Stig. <laughs> what does the, the word thematic mean? It means that we, we have a, a, a theme-based thesis. So we are investing in, in particular areas of this ecosystem. And, um, yeah, I mean, we can go into a lot more detail as to, to what those themes are and why. But, uh, yeah, it means thematic is from the word theme. Okay. Um, yeah. Sounds so, sounds sounds more complicated than actually is. It sounds very impressive. I'm sure it will be oh, a big success. <laughs> let's um, let's clap, cap it there. So thank you. This was Crypto and Grill, and uh, we'll see Cheers, you again. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Take care. Um, <laughs> uh, no, look. So um, so so before look, it would be great to dig into this thematic concept uh, a bit more in detail, and um, and what ID theory uh, is in, in in real detail, and and where you plan to take it over the next few years, because you're you know, you're a nascent firm. You've just started. Um, Let's give some context. Um, James, Graham, who are you? Uh, what are your backgrounds? Do you come from a financial services background? And was this a natural progression or is there a more complex um, origin story? Well, this, uh, this story starts in 1994, actually, in uh, the class 2P back at the RGS in Guildford. So Graham and I have known each other for 25 years. Um, we're best friends. Um, I was the best man at his wedding. He will be the best man at my wedding um, next year. Um, so we, we, we have a, a deep relationship. I mean, this guy knows me better than anyone else in the world, including my mother. Um, <laughs> Sounds so a little he, bit weird. She's a saint. <laughs> so um, just, you know, in terms of how we got into crypto, um, just dialing it all the way back. I'm a scientist by training. I've got a degree in genetics and biochemistry and a master's of research in complex systems. And I've always been interested in technology. I started my own web design company when I was 16. That funded my way through uni. Um, after uni, um, I went on to actually work for a startup company in the semantic web. Uh, the semantic web is actually the real web 3.0, um, as a, uh, you know, uh, defined by Tim Berners-Lee himself. But uh, in 2008, financial crisis, <coughs> lost my job, lack of funding. Um, ended up on a building site for four months, and then I was slowly drawn back into science, working for a, a very innovative British biotech company here in, in uh, London called GW Pharmaceuticals. And they made medicine from cannabis. And um, I, I started work there in the office of the chairman. Really interesting. 
Um, and, you know, in about 2012, I was invited to head up the discovery department. And it was my role there to go and find out new areas within which cannabis uh, might have efficacy. And so one of the first things I, I did was through social media, you know, try and find out what people were using cannabis to treat, you know, where were the interesting disease areas. And, and that was great because it opened up all these new areas of research, commissioned a load of preclinical research in models of IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, um, autism and whatnot. But the other thing that happened is that these groups of people were all talking to one another, obviously cannabis being illegal, uh, around procurement and um, how they could get their hands on this stuff to treat their ailments. And so that's when I first heard of Silk Road and, and naturally Silk Road, uh, the, the currency being used to, to buy these um, products was, was Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was on the radar then, but it wasn't until 2013, and it was just before my birthday, actually in April, that Bitcoin hit 100 bucks. And I was like, okay, you know, I thought this was World of Warcraft money. Um, what is this thing? And I just went deep and it was immediately obvious that this was a really important invention, uh, a transformative technology. And, you know, I'm a researcher and I really just started doing endless, endless research. Um, so, yeah, I think um, from that moment I was hooked and, and up until about... Um, uh, well, I, I quit my job at GW as a director of discovery in 2017. Up until that time, basically for six years, I had two jobs. It was crypto research and, and cannabis research. So two super exciting areas. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's, there's quite a few. Um, as, you know, this space is full of uh, podcasts and, uh, and people that have made a transition from one industry and one career into another. It's so funny that um, explorations into um, the Silk Road and accessing some kind of cannabis based treatment that was, uh, well, some people used it for drugs, right? But some people used it for cannabis based treatment. I think one of our previous mm -hmm. guests, Peter McCormack, who's got um, uh, a a successful podcast what bitcoin did he was saying that's his origin story you know his mother needed some cannabis treatment he couldn't get access to it he found out about bitcoin and, and bought and um, bought cannabis from from the silk road there to, to help his mum uh, and then got got into it much later but yeah that that does seem to be a well-trodden trodden path um so you were so you're kind of doing it for for all of this time in the background um, I'm just curious to know, because for anybody new to the space, and, and predominantly our, our podcast is directed at, um, at relatively new people that are starting to get their heads around it and understand it in more detail, there's so much information and so much analysis out there now. Um, you know, there's all of these theories about how Bitcoin is the new base money of the world that it could replace all fiat currencies, that it's, you know, it, the, the importance of it is really well understood now. Um, what was it like back in 2011, 12, 13, when you were first discovering it? You know, you said you were a researcher, but was there, was there much written about all of this um, then, or was it still in its kind of price discovery and it, uh, this could all be a scam and a failure um, concept phase? Yeah, I mean, we were, people were kind of scared that this wasn't a real thing, I guess. Look, there, there was there wasn't the noise that there was uh, that there is now. You know, now it's almost as an insurmountable amount of information that we're being fed, and and trying to filter out the rubbish and and really kind of latch onto the the valuable stuff is difficult. Um, you know, there, there was only really one decent podcast back then. I remember it well. Let's talk Bitcoin. 
Um, Epicenter came onto online a, a little bit later, but there just wasn't the resource. I, I really used Reddit a lot. And um, there's been complaints, you know, over the last three, four, five years about the social engineering on Reddit. And so um, you've always got to be careful about the information that you take in. Look, we, we just don't take anything for granted, Graham and I. That if we hear something, we always go down to uh, the base level and really try and understand um, the fundamentals yeah and i think that's one of the hardest i'd agree is is the hardest thing is there's so much information out there that some of it can be poorly informed sensationalist and you have to go really back to the source to find out and also taking different um, angles on it and different arguments to make your your mind up on what you think is the um the right way forward um because mm. a lot of people try and bend and, and turn this in their own direction um graham is uh so your background so it goes way back to uh to school what about um yeah. professionally do you have um a similar <laughs> background games or, or, or very different okay yeah so so we've got very very different uh def, different histories myself and james um i graduated from from nottingham university and, and uh as most graduates do i went and set up a, a poker business i was an avid poker player through uh through school and through university and uh, set up a business importing uh poker products from china um and yeah so literally two days after finishing uni an 18 wheeler uh, turned up at my parents' house with all this poker equipment. So that was the, the goal from there. Um, after about a year and a half of uh, sort of scratching a living, to be honest, on a, on a website that had no uh, no uh, SEO and were surprised that, you know, people weren't just flocking to this new flush poker empire that I was planning on creating. Uh, I thought it was time to actually uh, go up to the city and, and actually try and try and make something of my life. So I literally won day googled financial sales london uh you know my dad growing up was always been oh you'd be great at sales son i couldn't think of anything worse at the time but you know needs must i'm i'm, I'm a year and a half out of university and, and and broken living at home so um i was actually fortunate enough to come across uh, a company that i ended up spending 10 years at um called world first uh, and i joined uh, what was uh, a team of 30 people in basically a house in Battersea on a residential street. And the business model was really simple. It was an international payments and FX business. We were um, helping businesses trade internationally at a cheaper price than the bank was going to do. That was that was the business model. My role, even or not, cold calling. So I had to call 150 to 200 people a day, relentlessly, every single day, uh, for what turned out to be two years. And, um, you know, it really does sort of make the man. And I, I look back on that time now as, you know, it's definitely one of the toughest periods of, of my life. But I think doing that job day in, day out and, and sort of having to mentally overcome and basically convince someone on the phone from, uh, you know, having no knowledge of your company to then transferring millions of pounds to you, I think is a skill set that, that you can take anywhere. And, and I was fortunate enough to, to rise through the ranks. I became the, the chief commercial officer um, and the company started growing, growing pretty rapidly. We opened uh, six offices internationally. Uh, we grew to 800 people uh, and have most recently just been acquired by Ant Financials. So it was a great career. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a huge amount about how to, how to grow a business. It had great leadership. But I also uh, started to un uncover some of the, the failures of this uh, existing payment infrastructure uh, you know we were sending payments to China it, the payment would go through three different banks it might take two or three days to arrive and we're charging people you know a decent fee for doing that um, 
in the background, uh, I think it was in 20, uh, 2014, James sat me down and said, um, look, you've really got to start buying some of this Bitcoin thing. Um, you know, I've been researching. I really think it's uh, I really think it's the future and it's really important that you start buying it. Um, he, he he in the past has had a few, uh, you know, futuristic uh, visions that have turned out to, to come true. The Canvas one is obviously one. Uh, Facebook is another one in terms of he's never and is never uh, on social media. Uh, he, he called the Facebook scandal uh, about 12 years ago when uh, when he thought that the data would be leaked and, and sold to the hard sort of political bidder. Uh, and there's other things. So I took him seriously and uh, I started sending him um, and thought nothing else of it. It's, it's not the classic sort of rabbit hole story where I then dive down. Um, it wasn't real to me, and it was it was this ethereal thing that I couldn't quite get my head around until I was in Singapore um, at the end of 2016, I believe it was, um, and I met a company that our business had actually partnered with, um, and it, it was a great business. They they'd done a huge amount in nine months uh, and had this platform that was built built entirely on the Ethereum blockchain. And for me, that was the turning point where this was now a real uh, a real thing that was being utilized by real companies. And it was giving them an edge in a space that I was in, which was a fairly traditional sort of financial space. And so that's when the, the journey really started for me, that I, I came back and started diving into it, started investing uh, at that point pretty, pretty aggressively and, and really looking at what other projects, what other opportunities were out there. And a series of events sort of happened in, in sort of relatively quick succession where, you know, I'm investing in projects that are, you know, completely decentralized fiat and crypto uh, exchange layers uh, that promise sort of almost instant uh, settlement and very close to zero cost for transactions. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm working for you know, an international payments business that that is utilizing infrastructure that is that is, uh, you know, nowhere near those outcomes. And another thing happened was, you know, I had my 10 year anniversary dinner where when you when you when you sit down and sort of look the owners in the eye and you're 34 years old, and you've been at the same company for 10 years. Um, you know, there's there's a certain alarm bell that says maybe this is the time. And I've always had the desire to, to run my own company. So these three things combined to, to actually make the decision pretty easy. And uh, at the start of 2018, I, I resigned uh, to, to work on this business with James. Excellent. Right at the beginning of the uh, of the crash. So, exactly. Uh, perfect <laughs> exactly. to quit your job, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Last year was really, really fun. Really, really fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you quit and then sort of three months later beg for your job back or, or was your conviction still strong? <laughs> no, no, Actually, no. To, to, to be honest, you know, the, the, the crash happening was a blessing in disguise for us because at that point we we knew this was a real thing. And, you know, we knew that it was going to take some time for us to get established and get set up. So we, we remained very confident. And, and for us, in our eyes, it was kind of like, well, our competition is probably going to be getting blown out of the water on this. Because, you know, all the funds that had come into the space had come in at the back end of 2017. There's nothing really there. And uh, it, was a, it was a blessing in disguise. You know, I mean, we were working out of each other's houses at the time. But our convictions were there and um and yeah it, 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 for us it was okay were you were you guys always clear what your thing was going to be well but that, that yes i mean no yeah so you know 
it's quite funny because it wasn't just Graham who I told to buy Bitcoin. It was basically every single person I knew, and he was the only one stupid enough to listen to me, or wise enough, I guess, in in the end. But but by the time that you know Bitcoin broke through its old all time high in early two thousand seventeen, it was starting to gain prominence again in the media. It was back on people's radars, and of course. I was James, the weirdo Bitcoin guy who'd been shouting about it from the rooftop and just got an influx of, you know, messages over WhatsApp and and emails of like, how do I get into this space? So Graham and I spent a lot of 2017 helping our friends, you know, get get onboarded, signing up to exchanges, sorting out their hardware wallets and whatnot. And, you know, basically advising them on what we saw as the good projects in the space, you know, those that were truly decentralized, that had longevity and a real growth potential. And so we were we were kind of just managing um, a lot of people's, um, you know, kind of investment decisions, so to speak, you know, informally. But it was really, really enjoyable. And, and he and I just discussed over the course of the year that it was something that, you know, we could actually make happen. And so I quit in December 2017. Graham, you quit in, in you know, early 2018, I think, February, January, February. So we just knew we wanted to do something in crypto, whether that was going to be setting up a, an investment company or not. We weren't sure, but um, everything kind of just fell onto our lap. Yeah. And so, uh, so how do you make that um, step then? So, so you made the decision. What's the next step? And um, and how do you um, come up with as you as you sort of termed it earlier these thematic um, investment concepts, um, if that's if that's the right way to call them? And um, do you want to take us through them and uh, and just give us a view of how you see the world, how you see Bitcoin, um, sure. and how you see these themes kind of playing out? Sure. Just before we jump into that, I'll just give you the. the the brief synopsis of sort of how you go from from making that decision to to set up a fund to to actually sort of setting up the fund and then we'll cover the the thesis part i I think it's fair to say you know we we massively underestimated that the uh the process the duration and the cost of of actually setting this this vehicle up and it's one of these where it's 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 ironic in a sense because we are utilizing old financial infrastructure to create a vehicle to invest in in new financial infrastructure in essence and those two worlds don't don't mix very well so uh you know from a standing start to, to work out first of all what are all the pieces that need to be to be put into this structure from banking to administration to regulation uh you know to custody to all these operational elements that you need to piece together and you know that that process was was pretty arduous to be honest and uh you know i I guess the sort of notable challenges around banking and i think a lot of people have spoken about this in in this space that they're getting banks that are willing to to bank a a crypto fund is is pretty challenging you know finding an administrator that actually understands digital assets again was pretty challenging and you know shout out to a company called voban that's our administrators that you know, did a fantastic job in, uh, in in really committing their business to this space and and helped us along the way. But um, you know, that process took about eight months in terms of the sort of operational infrastructure piece to to get right and and get to a point where we're we're really comfortable with it. Um, uh, yeah. So I'll let James cover the the thesis part. But yeah, it was it's, it was it's interesting good. because because there's clearly a load of risks and challenges for what you guys are actually taking on in, at mm. the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, and I understand it. I can't, you know, coming from, a, you know, an FX and payments background, you know, number one is 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 sort of AML, like, you know, anti-money laundering, 
you know, know your customer requirements. And they're pretty black and white. And so, you know, if you if you come out, uh, you know, that you're, you're a fund and part of your fund might be investing in privacy coins, uh, you know, what's a privacy coin? Well, it's a, pri- it's a coin where you can't check where it's come from in essence which you know directly contradicts what what you know a lot of banks have as their baseline requirements so it requires sort of forward thinking uh forward thinking organizations that that want to be part of this space to uh to... sorry guys that's a far alarm at my place. is that the um is that the is that the sec or the fca <laughs> Run. Um, they're on to us. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I knew we should have done this podcast. <laughs> we should leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so James has been raided, um, but Graham, are you still with us? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Okay. So feel free to continue. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was it, really. I, I think... I think it's just just worth saying that the journey to to set up a a, a fund in this space is not an easy one, uh, and I'm not saying that to dissuade sort of future competitors. <laughs> I'm saying that just as yeah, from, from honest experience, it was quite a quite a long process, and and you've really got to find the right service providers. And you know, for, um, yeah, really pleased with the with the setup we have, but it took a while to get there. Yeah, so, I just remember that you know towards the kind of back end of of summer, and, and we aim to launch in in October, I'll come back to that in a sec, but like, just remember, we, we were at MindGram and just looked at each other and we're like, if we knew what this journey would entail, I doubt we would have ever embarked upon it because it was, it was grueling. It was, you know, and, and so many times we just thought it was over. There were so yeah. many hurdles, so many obstacles to overcome. Um, yeah. we, we were really forging a path that, that, you know, hadn't been kind of you know thorough that hadn't been plowed before and i know there are funds out there but there aren't there's not a a playbook to do this by um so it was it was an interesting experience but this this october thing like the aim was to launch in october and we were watching really carefully you know the market structure particularly bitcoin and um i think it's referred to as this big meme triangle but basically the correction from earlier on in that year all the way to october and Bitcoin was going to have to make a decision and it was at 6K and it was either going to go up or, or down. And, you know, it kind of crashed through that 6K bar. And it, it was at that point that we could just take a step back, breathe a bit of air. And, and we recognized that we're going to, we've got a bit more time now. You know, this bear market is nowhere near finished. Um, we can really, really kind of hone our, our kind of, you know, proposition our instrument. And so actually we didn't end up launching until um, February, which uh, was a, a very good time to launch. Okay. So so actually you entered it. So you had the opportunity really to enter in October and you made the concerted decision not to based on which way the market went. Yeah. Smart move. So why don't you, so the, um, so, so let's, now that we've kind of gone through the, the journey, I feel kind of, um, exhausted, uh, listening to that. It sounds, sounds like you guys really went through it. Yeah. Don't set up a fund. Yeah. Um, but let's put some, uh, let's put some energy back in. So, uh, take us through the theory. Um, what, what is it that gives ID theory the edge, um, over others? And, and what is it that you see that, that makes you, um, more likely to outperform others? So I I think it's actually really kind of understanding um, what it means to be decentralized. And it's not just about slapping a blockchain onto anything. So we we kind of 
use our, our history of investing in, in personal, um, you know, personally in, in a lot of these projects, we've really been able to kind of slice through the noise, uh, identify the scams, and we understand what's going to work as a, a decentralized network moving forward. The space is full of narratives. And for anyone who hasn't, you know, I'd, I'd really recommend looking at uh, Nathaniel Whitmore's uh, materials. He, he, he actually tracks narratives. But, you know, when I, when I first started back in 2013, it was all about money for the Internet. And then we had the, the initial wave of altcoins, which were basically Bitcoin clones with a few characteristic changes or, or parameters altered. And then, um, you know, it became blockchain, not Bitcoin. And that this is when the institutions started getting really uh, interested. And there were corporate endeavors to, to build out uh, blockchain into, into their enterprise. And, and then it was Bitcoin again was the big thing. And then after that, it was the FAT protocol thesis, whereby all the value that was being created by all of these projects would trickle down into the base layer protocols. And, and then, you know, last year was back to Bitcoin again, it being the sound hard money. I think for us, it's about being ahead of this narrative curve. It's, you know, being able to identify the opportunities way off on the horizon and, and having the vision and the wherewithal to understand the direction that the space is going in. Um, there's been noticeable maturation in the space, you know, since from, from when we first started. But I think being involved from the embryonic times, being, I mean, me personally, I've been, been a victim of three different exchange hacks. Um, you know, these are things that allow you to recognize where the risks are in the space. And, you know, what we want to do is, is really insulate our, our investors from the risk, but also open up, open up the opportunity. So, you know, we touched on our thematic investment piece. Um, just, you know, thinking about these narratives, it's been very interesting. I mean, there, there are real kind of chasms in the community here. And in fact, you see that it's very much split into two camps. We've got the money crypto hypothesis people on the one side, and then we've got like the tech crypto hypothesis people on, on the other side. And they're always sparring with each other as to where, where the best opportunity is. So, to break those out, the money crypto hypothesis is that, you know, there's going to be a, a winning asset in the class if, if this is about kind of creating a store of value. And, you know, you on your podcast, you've interviewed some, some really inspirational people who understand that. Um, but their argument is that there's only going to be one asset that wins. It needs to be self-sovereign, censorship resistant, scarce and secure and that Bitcoin fits the bill. That's true. Um, you know. Bitcoin does fit that bill. And for a store of value, we do think that it's going to be, be the, the ultimate winner there. But Bitcoin doesn't do everything. It does, for example, privacy really badly. Everyone thinks that Bitcoin is anonymous and it's not. You know, all of your transactions are there out on the ledger for everyone to see. So you going to buy a coffee, um, you know, can <laughs> it can show everyone else what you actually own in terms of Bitcoin. So we have a, a privacy focus uh, within the fund on the money side, but it's not just about money. You know, money was definitely the first killer app for blockchain. But this tech crypto hypothesis is, is fascinating for us. And it draws inspiration really from the history of, of the Internet, where we're going to have these decentralized networks that are powered by these crypto assets or tokens. 
and they act as, as economic incentives um, that fuel the growth of these networks. And that we're going to see the creation of really innovative, decentralized applications and instruments that have never existed before. You know, that we, we never really knew were possible in the same way that before the Internet, we didn't really know that social media was possible or, or Wikipedia. And so, um, you know, we don't think that these two world views are necessarily mutually exclusive. So, yes, these Bitcoin maximalists recognize how important hard money is but they don't recognize that there is value generation in the growth of these decentralized networks outside of money and that value will accrue into other areas in the ecosystem. But, you know, the crypto tech maximalists probably fail to realize how important hard money actually is. So that brings us on to our theme. So our first theme is, is very much about money, money for the internet, um, but also with a slant towards privacy. Our second theme is, you know, um, kind of distributed computing and, and base layer smart contract platforms. The, the, the foundation upon which all of these innovative new um, businesses and enterprise models are going to be created that, that can do things that were never before possible. And then we've got a third theme, which is kind of like the infrastructure layer which is on top of all of these things, the, the interesting areas that are being built, you know, stable coins, decentralized exchanges. These are uh, instruments that allow anybody anywhere in the world to transact with anyone without any permission, without, any, without requiring the trust, uh, without requiring counterparties. And, um, and so what we, we look to do for our investors is basically give them exposure to those, what we see as really three key growth areas. Uh, sorry, I'm, I was just going to jump there really, really quickly. And I think I, t I touched on it at the start as to, you know, what are we in trying to put us into a box? Is it, is it a hedge fund? Is it a venture fund? And, you know, how to refer to ourselves? And I, I said that we're sort of hybrid or, or crypto native. And, and the reason for that is we really split, split our structure and our strategy into, into sort of three things. So James was talking there about you know what are we investing in our investment theory but these are these are live assets right you know crypto assets are essentially the reward as part of an incentive mechanism of, of that network uh, and so part of what we do is is mobilize those assets to actually capitalize on the network rewards to try and realize the, the true value of the, those of those assets directly so participating in networks staking the assets we have and the third bit uh, and then i'll stop rambling on but the third bit is just around, you know, we, we've seen, you know, three times this sort of 70 to 90 percent correction occur. Um, and as investment managers, that's just not you, you, you can't sit here as a long buy and hold strategy and, and just, you know, stomach those kind of corrections for your investors. So we have a, a trading and risk management strategy that controls our exposure driven really on a number of factors, but according to, to the cycle that, we, that we're in and, and some of the some network metrics as well. So it's those three elements that combine that, that, that really give us that kind of, uh, um, you know, overall, I guess, multi-strategy approach to, to this space, which um, is, is kind of unique, we believe. It's, it's, it's amazing to hear how it sort of laid out that simply, because one of the things that I was reflecting on is actually how accurate you can apply those kind of two themes to this space and how important it is understanding those and the tipping balance over time between when one is more of a prime than the other. 
I guess my question would be for you guys is where, is where do you see the kind of the immediate future going? So where do you see the next sort of 12 to 18 to 24 months going from kind of that point between uh, crypto as money or crypto as technology? So I, I think for me, like it's it's really important to realize where we're at, and uh, you know we we are right now building out the the infrastructure here, and uh, you know we've had many attempts at uh, you know going straight to the application, um, and you know for for various different reasons, you know tra- transaction finality as an example uh, means that any application that's built you know on on Ethereum one point at the moment is going to be slow and as a user experience that's going to prevent adoption so our focus in terms of where we're investing is is in building out this infrastructure and you know with the recognition that you know it's these building blocks that are required to to get these eventual use cases down the track um so you know 2019 has already been the year where you know a lot of these projects that ultimately raise a huge amount of money on on you know white papers or or an mvp are, are starting to starting to actually deliver and starting to actually have real world real world live projects and uh you know and we've got a number of releases coming out this year so really that's the theme of this year um and uh yeah it's starting to play out like that as well yeah, and you know, think this market is really cyclical. As Graham kind of alluded to, we've had these massive corrections. I remember, you know, 2013. I think there was a 20x rise, a 70% correction in 2014. It was a, a 10x rise and a 85% correction. And then, you know, back end of 2017, it was a 22x rise and a 70% correction. We've had that correction. So where we're going now is. Uh, I think we're entering the start of the new cycle. So cycles are typically characterized by, you know, accumulation. Then there's the bull market. Then you get this massive parabolic arm, um, which really doesn't last for very long, maybe only a few weeks. And then there's a bit of profit taking. Then there's a big bear market. And that's where you get the bleed down by like 70, 80%. I think the the next kind of 12 to 18 months, uh, Stig, are going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of growth. Um, as, as Graham said, you know, people have been building. They've been building a lot over the last 18 months. And we're really seeing the fruits of their labor start to emerge. We're seeing some really great decentralized financial instruments come out with the likes of MakerDAO, where anybody anywhere in the world can create their own loan without any permissions. That's, that's crazy. We're seeing I like to think of all of these decentralized in- instruments as, you know, little Lego blocks that can be, they're all, you, you know, in the words of kind of Joe Lubin, who's one of the founders of Ethereum, they're all in the same design space when it comes to, when, it, when you're looking at the Ethereum uh, de- decentralized financial instruments. So these things can all connect together and they don't just have value generation by themselves, but by connecting together, there's value generated in the synergy created between those connections. And I'm very much of the opinion that probably the next run is going to be epic and it's really going to outshine the one, the ones that have come before it because crypto is now on people's radar and everyone thought it was dead. And the next time we go through 20K, it's going to be all over the news again. And people are already kind of onboarded. They've got Coinbase on their phones, you know, they can get money into the system, they can buy these assets really, really easily. And we're just, we're going to see a tipping point, really. So I guess the question is, you know, is Bitcoin 
Bitcoin, you know, and, and potentially other crypto assets. Is it mature enough now that it is considered as a, a potential safe haven, as, as a, an area outside of the, uh, of the traditional uh, financial system? It's interesting you, you you bring that up because you know it's one of the topics that we we're trying to get onto and have some real deep economic conversations um, throughout the series and we, we do have ideally a couple of economists uh, lined up they are not fully confirmed yet but uh, the people that we're hoping to speak to their view is that the big crash is coming you know there is a gigantic mm. debt-based bubble around the corner um, that is likely to be triggered by bonds. And um, you know it's it's not far away, and I think the challenge um, is, as you said, then James, it, are we heading for potentially an S curve uh, with Bitcoin, where there's a huge, um, huge uh, rise and it goes way past twenty, maybe up to a hundred, maybe even further than that. Who knows? Um, or is it more of a longer term cycle? Um, that is, um, you know, more mature and is more uh, is starting to align more with the traditional financial market cycles of, you know, five, ten year uh, bull market, bear market cycles. Um, but I guess the challenge to all of that is in an environment where the global economy collapses um, and there's a 2008 style, maybe even bigger um, crisis on our hands. Will we see people taking money and risk off the table and Bitcoin collapse or has it done enough in the last couple of years to prove itself as a um, um, as an as a safe safe haven sort of alternative to gold. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think you know, sort of from a sort of macroeconomic view, we're we're running on vapors, and you know, it's widely talked about. But you know, the Davis capitulation at the start of this year. Um, you know, if you just look at the sort of global interest rates and the sort of lack of room to move, you know, consistent QE. You know, national debt. Uh, you know, US is at 22 trillion. Japan at you know 22 percent debt to GDP. I think it is. It, globally, we're, we're not in we're not in a good place. And I think the question with Bitcoin is like, at what point? Uh, you know, I personally think in the next few years we're going to begin an inflationary re- recession. Um, and you know, at what point maturity of Bitcoin will it actually? you know, stand the test at that point. I think, you know, at the start of this year, I'd probably say it wasn't ready. I think there's been some positive, uh, you know, some positive movements and there's there's certainly there's more, there's smarter money getting into it. I think I also look at it from a, from the perspective of, you know, what are the investable uh, opportunities out there in, in the in the wider space? And, you know, we're, we're at the end or close to the end of the longest equity bull run in history. You know, treasury yields are plummeting on on sort of growth concerns. Uh, you know, the fiat in your pocket is losing purchasing power by the day. So money has to go somewhere at the end of the day. And uh, you know, the longer that Bitcoin is here, it's almost anti-fragile in that sense. That that the, the stronger the case for it actually taking some of this adoption in that scenario increases. So. Uh, um, you know, I'm confident. I think both of us wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think ultimately that, uh, you know, that was going to happen. Um, it's just a question of timing and, and and how this sort of macro environment plays out and when it plays out. Yeah. And, you know, this is without a doubt, it, it is an emerging asset class, but it's rapidly growing. And today it's certainly, you know, uncorrelated. So it offers great risk adjusted returns. It's, it is really small when you look at other asset classes. I think, um you know, but it has so much room to grow. And we've just been talking about market cycles. You know, now I think for people, it's a very attractive market entry, you know, post-correction. 
and the upside potential is is potentially asymmetric. When you look at the the health of these networks, Graham talked about network metrics, and it's it's something that we look at very very closely uh, within ID theory. You know, these networks are really healthy. The price might have been hit over the last eighteen months, but the networks have gone from strength to strength. When you look at active addresses and on chain va- um, value transfer. When you, when you actually look at the momentum uh, of these metrics, we can see that it's swinging uh, in a kind of, you know, uh, crazy upward direction. Um, you can start applying some um, principles that you would to just market momentum. You can actually apply those to, to network momentum. And, and across the board, we're seeing some really, really positive things. So when an investor is evaluating whether or not they should um invest you know from a kind of portfolio structure point of view irrespective of your views on bitcoin and its sustainability it actually does warrant a place in any diversified portfolio and there was a great piece uh by wences cesar as you know the ceo of zappo earlier in the year uh where he was advocating a one percent allocation of, of bitcoin to any traditional portfolio structure um, historically, that has led to significant and persistent outperformance in, in risk-weighted returns. The published literature is showing it as well. You know, any investor who believes Bitcoin is going to continue to do as well as it has done for the last seven years, seven years or so, they should be allocating Bitcoin within their portfolio. Um, so, look, we're, we're monitoring all of this really carefully. We're, we're not. Uh, you know, is it immune from a catastrophic economic downfall? It's still risky. But we do believe that over time, this is going to be considered a, a safe haven. I mean, after all, you know, it was created in the wake of 2008 in a response to the financial crisis. Um, and, and, you know, its size at the moment, I think Bitcoin's current market cap, 140 billion, total crypto, 250 billion. If you contrast that to gold, it's 2.4 trillion. So if people are, are going to recognize this as a, a bona fide store of value, a digital gold, so to speak, it's got a lot of room to grow. It's going to be fighting for $800 trillion worth of the value that exists within the global economy. And, you know, with only 21 million individual units, you don't really need to be a mathematician to recognize the potential that, that exists there. Yeah, great. And I, I read something, I think, um, about a week ago, maybe, uh, it may have been from another fund manager that, um, that did some analysis. And over the last 12 months, I think, um, the return, the average return from a portfolio of, of funds that he looked at was, uh, I think it was around about 7.4 or 7.6%. Um, if and that was exclude assuming that those funds didn't have any exposure to bitcoin i think they laid in some analysis which said if they'd have put one uh, percent of their um, portfolio into bitcoin um, it would have risen to around about nine percent um, but if it had have in the same time period gone down to zero um, the return would have been seven percent so for a one percent allocation of as you said which has massive upside um, the the risk on the uh, on the investment is incredibly low. Yeah, and yeah. it's actually not just Bitcoin. You know, when when evaluating a, a basket of crypto assets, except for possibly a mild correlation with gold and, and and crude oil, there isn't any significant relationship between returns on that that basket of crypto assets and, and more traditional assets. Excellent. So it just it just makes sense to have it in your portfolio. 
Okay, so we've uh, so we've kind of given a view of what the next 12 to 24 months look like. So what, if we were to look at the longer term, the much longer term, the kind of 10, 20 years time, what are your guys' views on this more as more as a theoretical concept and where it can where it can go? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's so important to actually, you know, t- take this away from price. And I, th- I think given what's happened over the last couple of years, price has just been this sort of dominant factor and it kind of obscures what's actually being built here, which I think is, you know, incredibly important. So what what we're really talking about and, and how I guess we see it is that this is about decentralization, but it's about decentralizing ho- human control over computation. And what I mean by that is, you know, we rely on the likes of Google and Facebook for our communication, for our data and for, for every, every element of our digital existence, really. Um, and that works fine for the most part. But we've had over the last 10 years, numerous examples where that trust has been exploited in, in one of any number of ways. And so there has been this growing demand for, for ownership of uh uh, ownership of your own data within that sphere. And, you know, what we're really building here, not ourselves, but what this space is really building is this decentralized computational stack. And the, 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 the you know, it's quite an ethereal concept and everyone talks around sort of Web 3.0. And I think what people miss is really what the benefits of this are and, and, and how, how explosive this could be in the future when these building blocks are laid. So, uh, you know, I think I think the first point to note is that this is all open source technology. So that means that the, the pace at which innovation can ha- happen all over the globe with developers porting code that has already been built and shared and building on top of it um, is astronomical. So the pace of change that we will see once these building blocks are, are in place is going to be huge. Uh, the other point is around these applications being able to talk to each other. So having composability within this uh, decentralized stack, again, is going to accelerate the, the possibilities and the pace of innovation on top of these layers. And, you know, all we're standing, you're eliminating entirely this inherent platform risk that we have at the moment. And if you think of the sort of Zingers and Facebook examples where, you know, big businesses have been built on technology that changes their T's and C's and then, uh, you know, uh, ultimately that business folds. So this gives confidence to that developer community that this is here for the long term. And and with this open source and composability together, I think that the sort of explosion of innovation that we're going to see is going to be pretty astronomical. And yeah. It's inter- yeah, it's interesting because the the day to day infrastructure which we're all still working off hasn't changed a huge amount since yeah. the massive rise in 2017. And, exactly. And what's going to be interesting is seeing how that base infrastructure, that base layer, starts to morph and change based on this new technology. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think ultimately it's it's obfuscated away. You, you're not going to know necessarily that that some of the things that you're interacting with uh, are built on this technology, and that that would be the win. You know, the part of the challenge now is that, you know, you have to interact with in, in all these new ways that people are not used to, which is preventing adoption. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I always think of, you know, a kid in India with a smartphone in, in a year's time building an application uh, uh, that, that, that is completely censorship resistant, that doesn't cost anything to set up. And, uh, you know, will, will it be in existence for for, you know, for forever, essentially? Um, it's pretty exciting when you start stacking those up ideas on top of on top of each other 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there, Jones. I think um, there was an article, interestingly, uh, this week, I think, um, that stated, look, you've got to be careful of the blockchain hype. And, uh, you know, there there is definitely merit and, and smart contracts and the whole sort of decentralized future. There's a, there's a lot in there. But yeah. people probably won't talk about this in the future. Um, it's there as a component of a technology stack and an organization to facilitate um, actions. Right? It's the same as saying, you know, exactly. in 10 years' time, people, you know, it, 10 years time, people aren't going to go around saying we're a blockchain company, we have this um, blockchain capability and that blockchain capability. It's the same as yeah. saying today, we're a PowerPoint company, we're an Excel company, we are, you know, we've got, a, we've got a database. It's not, it's not going to be a thing in the future, it'll just be invisible and in the background. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think the other important thing just to say here is that, you know, everyone's trying to work out how they can sort of port existing apps applications that we know today onto a blockchain you know the sort of social media eos voice <laughs> idea you know it's it's not about that like it's not about that it's about what what applications can be created that can only be created as a result of this technological innovation you know and it really boils down to like what is this bottleneck in in growth that trust trust has uh, has created and where can we free that up to create new use cases and for, for blockchain you know the first area really that that has got traction and is continuing to get traction uh is finance and you know that makes sense because you know if if microsoft you know brought out bitcoin uh no one would use it so it makes sense to start from there um but really the, predicting what the the sort of killer applications are beyond that is 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 challenging like like predicting social media before the internet so yeah um it, just you know fundamentally we believe that implementations of this technology are going to have far reaching impacts on on not only our economy but also society and that that's going to be transformative uh, of a magnitude similar to the internet if not more than the internet actually you know, where the internet was a big network of information, we've now got a network of trust where you can transfer value and data. And, um, the, 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 you know, with all this abuse of trust that's happened, I think that the generational adop uh, adoption of this technology is going to, you know, really propel it into the future. It, it's interesting to reflect, uh, certainly from my perspective, reflecting on the last two to three years, but probably from your perspectives, reflecting on the last five to six, how the space has come on so much, but actually on, on the mainstream and the sort of realization of what you see day to day, it actually hasn't hasn't really changed or infiltrated that heavily at all. And it's it's an exciting yeah. to think what will happen when it does. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, a number of people sort of made this analogy to sort of, uh, you know, creating public markets out of sort of early stage uh, VC, which is basically what has happened here. And, you know, VC funds are 10 years. And, uh, you know, what we've got here is this sort of public expectation uh, as a result of price, early price discovery and projects that never would have had, uh, you know, public investment at this stage. And so there's this expectation of like, well, there's no applications, there's no users, there's no, there's nothing there. And, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect there to be anything yet there, you know, two years or three years into uh, into the, the creation of a you know a tech startup. So, you know, we've you know, price is, to be honest, a distraction for a lot of this and yeah. and, and certainly brought in the wrong the wrong types of people in, in 2017. The bear market has had a, a decent cleanse. And you yeah. know, it is this old analogy that, 
you know, if we could go away for, for a year and a half in a, in a sort of closed room and, uh, you know, just freeze the markets for a while, obviously it wouldn't be great for our fund. But um, but um, for, for actually getting the job done, I think uh, that that's what's required and, and resetting uh, expectations on this time frame. Um, Graham, Graham, do you remember when uh, when we were like 16 and we used to play Warcraft 2 together over the Internet? Sadly, you know, yes. it, it was <laughs> it, it was primitive. We had to dial in each other's IP numbers. But, you know, we were doing something then that has become the hugest in industry, you know, with all the esports and stuff. Back then, it was so obvious how the Internet was going to change gaming. I think for, for Graham and I, it's very obvious about how blockchain is going to change the society that we live in. And, um, you know, we just looked to position ourselves and our investors on the forefront of these kind of revolutionary moves that are going to be happening in the future. Amazing. Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on before we finish, because I know that either one or both of you um, have uh, background and interest in genetics. Um, and it's something we, we discussed briefly before the, the, uh, the podcast started. Um, do you have a view that um, actually what we're kind of doing here is um, that uh, Darwinian theory of blockchains, which one's going to survive, which ones will die? Um, and you know, by, by, by testing all of these different features, incentive mechanisms um, and components, um, and, and we're kind of in that early discovery phase. What are your views? Yeah, so, you know, my background is genetics and, and particularly kind of complex systems. These decentralized networks, you know, we see as kind of species that are subject to um, Darwinian mechanics. So this week we're publishing our thought piece, which outlines how how the future will emerge. And then through the lens of biology, uh, how that informs our, our where, where the greatest investment opportunities are, I guess. And, you know, look, your podcast builds itself as a, an on-ramp for newbies to the space, and, you know, wants to outline how the ecosystem will emerge and, and how projects will evolve. Well, that's very fitting with, with what we're about to publish. There's loads of great thought pieces about evolution in the blockchain space. You know, you've got Crypto and Grill alumni Dan Held, who, who was on recently. He's done a wonderful piece looking at um, uh, Bitcoin as a form of life and, and comparing it to to other types of money and, and, and touching on genetics and more recently Tom Shaughnessy's work. Um, but we look to take that all a step further. And these concepts, they're not new. Evolution in blockchain, it's, it's not new. They came to prominence really around the release of the Tezos white paper back in 2014. And for your listeners who don't know, Tezos is a, a kind of evolving and self-amending blockchain. But, you know, this is something we've been thinking about now for a very long time. And we've identified undeniable parallels between evolution in biology and the evolution of these decentralized networks and, and their underlying technology. And so uh, we're really excited to, um, to, to get the piece out. I mean, small plug, you'll, you'll be able to find it on our new website, which is idtheory.io. Um, and by the time this podcast comes live, yeah, it's going to be up. So um, I think, you know, the, the conclusion from that piece is that and to tie it back to ID theory, you know, ID stands for incentive design. So we've talked a couple of times during the podcast about the crypto assets um, are part of the incentive mechanisms of, of, um, of these decentralized networks. You know, they reward people. 
for contributing and participating in the networks, and they act as basically network access tokens. But these incentive mechanisms are analogous to, in nature, growth factors. And so those decentralized networks that have the best incentive design are the ones that ultimately are going to have the highest growth rates and the most proliferation of those networks. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a, a complicated piece. I think mean, it's trying to teach people a bit of biology and a bit of blockchain at the same time. But, you know, we, we're looking forward to getting it out there. And, and it, it genuinely has defined our investment thesis. Super exciting. Look, guys, it, we're nearing the end. It's been amazing having you on. Just before we sort of head into our traditional exit, uh, <laughs> what what does the next six to 12 months look like for you and for ID Theory? Uh, um, so, so we're actually this marks this podcast actually marks the, us coming out of stealth mode. So we've uh, we've been onboarding our, our network into into the fund, uh, building out the infrastructure, building out the team, and and that's what now we'll complete. So the next phase is actually getting out, out there uh, a little bit more publicly. Uh, we're traveling a lot, going to events. We're spending time with projects, and a big part of what we try and do all the all the while is try and educate people uh, whether they're investing or not as to, to what this space is about and we've recently just come back from the BVI where we were talking at a school and we were talking in Istanbul at a, a YPO event as well just trying to um, trying to put the word out there as much as possible so so lots more of that awesome um, so to take us through to our close then this is the crypto and grill podcast um, you guys uh, let's fast forward into the future you're going to celebrate your 12 month um, successful launch uh, Bitcoin has gone to the moon you've invited SEC FCA any other hostile regulators and other parties uh, that you might want to uh, schmooze and keep on on good terms to your uh, newly um, launched offices in the city for a rooftop barbecue. Um, what are you going to put on the barbecue and the grill to keep those um, to keep those people happy? Um, you can have one choice of um, of item each. I'm going to put a whale on there. A whale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, they're so important within this space. So we've got to recognise, you know, the whales for good or bad. Let's eat them up. Whale. I just they've, they've, feel... they've been feeding enough. So it's time for us to I feed think, on them. Yeah, I, gonna, I feel the animal protection yeah. crew is going to be up, Jim, with that one. This is going to be a blacklisted podcast, I think, after that one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's, let's what goes with a whale, Graham? What, what goes goes with a whale, Graham? I mean, the obvious thing is lobster. Let's lobster. get some crustaceans on there. You know, let's let's really celebrate. Okay, <laughs> dinner it is. Brilliant. Um, look, guys, I think that about wraps us up for today. Um, thank you for your time. Um, best of luck over the next 12 months. And um, yeah, I'm awesome. Sure hopefully it goes well. Thanks if, very much. Nice guys. one, guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs>